Good morning, church. It is sad to uh, hear the news of Jared's moving away from us. There is another announcement, but I will leave that over to our senior pastor to come to make that announcement. So, um, there is some replacement for, um, for Jared. There's not going to be a void, although no one really can fill Jared's shoes. He's been a great minister and have really done great work here at Kingscliff. Let us bow our heads before we start in prayer. Gracious Father, it is our prayer that you will make us quiet deep inside us. Quiet the voices that so often speaks in the deep recesses of our minds. Make it calm so that we can hear the infilling of your Spirit. And Father, as we further explore in the book of Matthew chapter 16, it is my prayer that you will be the interpreter and that only one will be glorified, and that is you. May it be that after spending this time in your word, that we will not be the same anymore, but be different because of your spirit touching our life, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue in the book of Matthew on the teachings of Jesus. That is part of chapter 16, where he continues to deal with the teachings that Jesus were teaching his followers. I just wondered today, as we ponder the authority and the identity of who Jesus is, I just wonder where you establish truth from. Where would you go? to find guidance in terms of truth. The story is told that on um, the Indian Reserve, uh, the, the elders came to and the Indian, new Indian chief. It was the turn of the season. So they said, chief, tell us, uh, will this coming winter be a cold winter? We need to prepare. We need to know. The young chief, who had not grown up with the traditions of, of the old chiefs, who had lived in a more modern society, didn't really know what to say at first. But you know, winters are normally cold. So he said to them, it will be a cold winter this winter. You better gather wood for this winter. Chief, uh, the, the leaders went back and they spoke to the rest of the tribe and they started out to gather their wood and this new chief uh, realized that he needed some more insight and so he went to the telephone booth and he phoned the weather bureau and uh, the man on the other side answered the phone and he said, look, I've got a question. What is the forecast for this winter? Will it be a very cold winter? The man at the weather bureau said, yes, it will be a cold winter. It's in, it indeed will be a cold winter. So the young chief went back to his people, called them together, and said, look, 
I have gathered some more information by looking around at nature. We are going to get a really cold winter. You need to prepare for this winter. So his people went out and they started to gather more fervently for, 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 for more firewood. And a few weeks later, the young chief went again to the telephone booth and phoned up and said, look, I need to know what is going to be the weather like in this coming winter. The guy on the other side said, well, according to all our readings, it's going to be a really, really cold winter. And the chief went back to his people and said, look, you really have to prepare for this winter because it is really going to be an extraordinary cold winter. Gather every piece of wood that you can, can get. And they started to gather a few days later, the chief went to the telephone booth and phoned the weather bureau and said to the man, are you sure that it's going to be a very cold winter? How sure are you? Based on what did you get this information from? Well, the man at the weather bureau said, we've been watching the Indians. They are really fervently <laughs> gathering wood. It is indeed going to be a very cold winter. Oh, friends, where do we go to establish truth? In chapter 15 of the book of Matthew, Jesus, a great mass of people are gathering around Jesus. And it is the book of Mark that tells us that Jesus, well, Matthew says that great numbers came and brought their sick to Jesus. But Mark says that one particular man who was deaf and mute was brought to Jesus. And after Jesus had placed his fingers in his ears and called out, Be open! Jesus touched with his finger on his own tongue and touched the tongue of this man, and he started to speak. Then follows the feeding of the 4,000. The miracles were all in place. It was there for anyone to see that wanted to see. And then we come to the first verse of chapter 16. It says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. Yes, they wanted a similar sign as in the days of Joshua when the sun stood still. Show us a sign that you are the Messiah. Show us a sign so that we can place our confidence and our trust in you. In Matthew 3, 16, verse 3 and 4, Jesus responds and he says, Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. They know how to interpret the weather by looking at the sky, Matthew says. 
They know how to interpret the signs of the times in terms of Bible prophecy. But when it comes to the prophecy that relates to the Messiah, they place a curse on anyone who would read and interpret the prophecy that identifies the Messiah. What they will get? My friends, no matter what sign Jesus would give them, will not satisfy their true need. What they truly need is a reconversion, a change of heart, and a change of attitude. And therefore Jesus says, no sign will be given to you. The inspired pen writes the following and says, every miracle that Christ performed was a sign of his divinity. He was doing the very work that had been foretold of the Messiah. But the Pharisees, uh, sorry, but to the Pharisees, these works of mercy were a positive offense that which led the Jews to reject the Savior's work was the highest evidence of his divine character. The greatest significance of his miracles is seen in the fact that they were for the blessing of humanity. What did they see? As they moved around with Jesus on the outskirts of the crowd, trying, waiting to find things to criticize Jesus over. They saw that the blind could see. They saw that the deaf could hear. They saw that the lame could walk, that even the dead were raised. But friends, the greatest evidence that Jesus was, who he says he is, was found in the lives that were transformed, the lives of the people that allowed Jesus to touch their lives. You see, demon-possessed men became sane men. Simons became Peters. Sons of thunder became apostles of love. Sauls became Pauls. And cheats became honorable, honest people. Yes, And even you and I can be transformed and changed in character as we allow Jesus to come into our life. At least it is the Old Testament talking about the work of the Messiah where God promises in Ezekiel 36 verse 26 and he says, A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put into you. And since the religious leaders refused to accept the transformational power that Jesus was so eager to impart even to them, the only sign that they would get would be the sign of Jonah. What was that sign? Jonah spent three days In the belly of the fish, the true Messiah will spend three days in the bowels of the earth in death. But then he will conquer death. And as he rises from death, he will bring salvation 
to each and every one that will accept him for whom he truly is. We need to note this morning that those who desired a sign from Jesus had so hardened their hearts in unbelief that they did not discern in his character exactly the likeness of God himself. They would not see in his mission that his mission was a fulfillment of Scripture. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he says, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they do not hear the Scripture, Moses, the five books of Moses, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, which was the then known Scripture for them, if they do not hear the Word of God, neither will they be persuaded, though even someone rises from the death. And even when Jesus, after three days, rose from the dead, they had to persuade and pay people to tell a lie about his resurrection, unwilling to be persuaded even by the sign that was given to them. Here's my question. Are we any different? My dear friends, are we any different? I recall many, many years ago, a young lady, still in Africa, a young lady phoning me up to make an appointment. She came to see me in my office, sat down and she said, Pastor, I want you to pray for me because I need a sign from God. I said, what is the sign that you're praying for, wanting me to pray uh, with you for? She said, "I I want a sign from God to know whether the man that I'm dating is the man that God intends for my life. Good prayer, isn't it? The only problem is that as she continued to speak, she eventually disclosed that the man she's currently dated, dating is in actual fact a married man. Here's my question. Would God give her a sign? He has already given a sign in the Word of God. He's already given in Scripture for her proper guidance on what is right and what is wrong. So no no sign will be given to her. How often do we not rather prefer that God gives us a supernatural sign than exploring the Word of God to discover the guidance that the Word of God has already given to us? Let's move on in our chapter 16. Jesus draws his disciples away. and He is facing the final moments of his life. And he, he wants to warn them. In verse 6 he says, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is Jesus warning them against? He's warning them against the teaching, singular. Not the teachings, plural, but the teaching, singular, 
of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That is the teaching of hypocrisy. Holding to a belief that they are theologically and spiritually far more higher than other people. That they have a higher spiritual standing than other people. In verse 12, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, because by the way, that they, they had not brought enough bread along with them, although they have just been fed. Jesus had just fed 4,000, and they had already forgotten in whose presence they were. But of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Can I speak my heart out this morning? My dear friends, the longest longitudinal study that that has ever been done in a religious group has been done among Seventh-day Adventists by a man, one of our, our greatest educators, Roger Dudley. Professor Roger Dudley from Andrews University. Roger Dudley did a study on the question, why do Seventh-day Adventist young people leave the church? Do you know what was the outcome of his study? The number one reason why Seventh-day Adventist young people leave the church is not because our young people is in disagreement with what the the church is teaching. But the reaction is against the hypocrisy that they so often see within the church. What they see is parents teaching them one way, but living a different What they see is a certain standard by which parents and church leaders are expecting the young people to live, but seeing a different lifestyle when the tide comes off on Saturday evening. The voice suddenly changes from the Sabbath voice to the home voice. And young people say, if that is what Christianity is all about, then I don't want to know anything about it. Jesus withdrew his disciples from out of the crowd. He takes them away from the influence of the Jewish leaders. He wants to talk to them alone. He is going, facing the final moments of his life. He is now working towards Golgotha and Calvary. He wants to teach them the basis of all the teaching, whom he is. And in Matthew 16, verse 13 and verse 14, he says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, out of the reach of Galilee, out of the reach of the Jewish leaders, now in the territory of heathens, 
It is there amongst the, the heathen worship systems that he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. Oh, my friends, at the basis of of our faith lies the question of who is Jesus. Am I right? What is the identity of Jesus? Jesus first draw their attention to what others say about Jesus. And what they say is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was the greatest prophet that ever lived. Matthew 11, verse 11. But despite belonging to a a sect that did not believe in the resurrection, we find that Herod's conscience was so pricked that uh, for, for killing John the Baptist, that by hearing the preaching of Jesus, Herod believes that John the Baptist had stood up out of the grave and is now preaching in the person of Jesus Christ. They say Elijah. Who was Elijah? Elijah was the great prophet of the Old Testament. He was was the victor at Mount Carmel, which brought Israel to that conversion experience against Baal. He he, he was the instrument in God's hand to, to lead the greatest victory against Baal worship. But a man at the height of his ministry became so scared about a woman and his life. Common belief, though, based on Malachi 4, verse 5 to 6, was that Elijah would physically rise again. Jesus links the message of John the Baptist to Elijah's message of conversion. They further say Jeremiah, the great prophet during the Babylonian occupation, a man that stood in spite of being brutally abused by God's own people. Or they said, other prophets. Really, friends, they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't have the faintest idea. They, they were guessing about, who's, about the identity of Jesus. Oh, my friends, it is no different to us today in our world because so often we ourselves are confused about who Jesus truly is. Some Christians think that he was the greatest teacher that ever lived. Others believe that he was the greatest physician that could even raise the dead. Others said that he was the greatest philanthropist or the greatest philosopher, the greatest preacher. Some even think that he was the greatest prophet of all the prophets. But if Jesus is not today whom he says he is, my dear friend, then we are left with no hope. We are left with no future. And as we stand in front of open graves, there is no future for our loved ones that are buried in those graves. If Jesus is not the Christ, if Jesus is not the Messiah, if Jesus is not the Son of God, the Savior of this world. 
But if Jesus is, if Jesus is all of this, then knowing it based on what others' opinions of Jesus is, is not good enough. Then it means that you and I need to come to a personal encounter with Jesus and know Him as our personal Savior and friend. Therefore, Jesus turns to His disciples and He asks them the following question. He says, but who do you say that I am? In other words, it is good to know what others say, but who will I be in your life? This is the most important, most crucial question of all questions in our life. This is the question before which each of us need to stand, the question in whose answer hangs the balance for eternity. The question is, who will Jesus be to us? Will he just be a a great man, a great leader? Or is Jesus my personal savior, my personal friend, the one to whom I have opened every aspect of my life? Matthew 16 Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Desire of Ages tells us, Never can humanity of itself attain to a knowledge of the divine. Only the spirit of adoption can reveal to us the deep things of God. The fact that Peter discerns the glory of Christ was an evidence that he had been taught of God. Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bajona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it to thee. And then Jesus continues to say, in verse 18 and 19, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, wait a minute, let me give you the Greek, and this I also say to you that you are Petros, And on this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does this mean that Peter now is the one that is the rock upon which our faith needs to be built? So many well-meaning Christians believe this, my friend, but the word Peter signifies a stone, a rolling stone, one that is never stable. And it is very clear out of Scripture, out of history in Scripture, that Peter did not prevail against the gates of hell because just a few weeks later, Peter would curse his own Lord and Savior and swear against him. The gates of hell did prevail against him. But the church was built upon the rock, on the one against whom the gates of hell could not prevail. And and my dear friends, the psalmist, sorry, let me go back. For centuries before the Savior's advent, Moses had pointed to the rock of Israel as the coming Messiah. 
The psalmist sung about the rock of my strength. Isaiah had written, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure fountain. Again referring to the Messiah. And then Peter himself, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 and 5, says the following words, If ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, referring to Jesus himself, unto whom coming a living stone, making Jesus the stone, not himself, he says, rejected indeed of men, but with God elect precious, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. For 6,000 years, faith was built on this truth, this fact, that Jesus is the rock of our faith. For 6,000 years, the floods of temptation and of satanic attack could not prevail against this rock. When Jesus made this prophecy to to, to Peter, the church was just a, a small, fledgling little group of people, but it grew to a massive church that stood on the foundation, the rock Jesus Christ. Peter has expressed the truth where is the foundation of the, of, of the church, the foundation of all truth, my dear friends, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the divine, he is the Son of God. The keys to the kingdom, his word. That as we open his word, the gates of heaven are opened for us as he writes his word on our hearts. All of the Holy Scripture are his. The question this morning that I have for you, my dear friend, is who is Jesus in your life? A school teacher one day asked his pupils to name the greatest people that they know of that is alive. And one of the, 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 the pupils, I, I guess his father must have been a golfer, stood up and said, Sir, I know the greatest person that ever lived is Tiger Woods. He's the greatest golfer that ever lived. And another pupil put up his hand and said, Barack Obama is the greatest leader of our world. Another one said, Ronald Trump. Or Don, Donald Trump. And Ronnie put up his hand and he said, Sir, it is Jesus Christ. The teacher looked at Ronnie and said, That can't be true because Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He can't be the greatest. I'm asking for the greatest people that is still alive. Ronnie said, Yes, sir. After three days, Jesus rose from the dead and he now lives in my heart. My question is this, is Jesus alive in your heart today? Is the truth today ablaze in your heart? Is the truth today encapsulated in the person who is called Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God? That, my dear friend, is the crucial question 
for each one of us. I plead with you today, if Jesus is not yet the Lord and the Savior of your heart, don't leave the sanctuary, not before you have invited him in. It is not anymore good enough for others to tell us about him. The time has come that we need to give him full access to our life. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, from childhood we have learned, heard and learned in Sabbath school about Jesus Christ. There's been wonderful stories and dedicated people that shared those stories, but if that is where the story will stay, it has no saving power in our lives and in our hearts. I pray this, this morning, Lord, is that Jesus will become a reality to each one of us. That the foundation, the rock of all truth, will become for us that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. He is not just the Messiah for the world, but He is also the Son of God that reigns in my heart. My prayers that as we leave the sanctuary, that we will give you full access, Lord, that we will be transformed and changed by him, that we will be different people because of him. And dear Lord, if there's anyone in this audience that still questions whether it is safe enough, whether they can trust you enough, whether they can open themselves to your full access, to give them your full access to the light. May it be that your Holy Spirit will not depart from them, that you will continue to plead and bring them to that point of full surrender. I pray for us as a church, dear Heavenly Father, that this church will become known as a church of the book, but also a church of people in whom Jesus truly lives. May it not just be a theoretical thing, but may our community, may our families, our children see that Jesus is alive within us. Now it's my prayer that the great love of the Father, the Son Jesus, uh, the, the Son Jesus Christ and the all-abiding presence of the Holy Spirit hold us at this point to this decision, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.